Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, January 30th, the writhing in the workplace edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Uh, unfortunately, Nicole is out this week, so we're going to have to bring the conversation and the discourse extra hard. <laughs> um, speaking of great discourse, I want to thank a bunch of our listeners who wrote in with comments about our segment on Meghan and Harry's semi-departure from the royal family. Two listeners actually wrote in with kind of is it sexist questions about it. One person wrote, living in Los Angeles and knowing people who know people. (gasps) (laughs) One thing that flavors this whole Meghan Markle conversation for me is knowing that her career goal from the beginning was to get just famous enough to get access to attend the right parties to meet and marry a royal so that she would never have to work again. Of course, they can't give sources, so that's all just rumor, but maybe it's also a fun little game of is it sexist. So there are sexist rumors on this side of the pond, too. I had no idea. I have to say that also, just for the record, was my career plan. (laughs) (laughs) And how's it going for you? Yeah, not working out exactly the plan. <laughs> As somebody else wrote in to say, I wanted to raise the idea that saying Megxit, which is what the term that we use for most of the show, is sexist. And using that term is similar to the biased treatment Meghan Markle received from the press. There are reports that Harry has often brought up leaving, and it was Harry who posted in fall 2019 about the legal action against the press. Calling this Megxit puts the blame on Megan for her family's unified response to the racist treatment she's received from the press. I hope the next time this comes up in your discussion, you choose another way to talk about it. Some have suggested Sussexit. Sussexit. I kind of like that. Actually, it's funny. I had some of the same feelings when I tweeted about our show, huh. and I called it Megar Exit. Ah. <laughs> Not as... Not as elegant, but I, I Wait, had those the feelings. Wait, what's the R? Oh, because Harry? Exit, yeah. Oh, Meg Har exit. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, tough. No, this point is well taken, and I'm glad that I'm glad to – I hadn't thought about it that way, and now I totally agree. June, you had something you wanted oh, to say, Oh, thank too. you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to thank listeners for entering the giveaway for Marsha's amazing new book franchise. Um, yeah. We have now picked the winners, but it was just really nice that many people, I, as I mentioned, there was no requirement to say anything. You just had to <laughs> kind of send in an email. But many of the people who entered the giveaway just kind of made a, a nice comment and it, that was really pleasant because I have to say, like, I don't have a problem with getting contentious emails. That's kind of the point of, uh, you know, when you throw things out, you should expect to get something back. But um, it's still nice to hear pleasant things. So I appreciate that. Thank you, listeners. Me too, listeners. Yeah. So many of you wrote in, which now I'm like, oh, now I know you're all out there. Like, where are you when we ask for is it sexist questions? So. <laughs> You're going to have to write in more now. Um, Okay. Now it's time for our episode. (laughs) Uh, We have a couple really good topics this week. I'm very excited. We're going to start off with a review of Gwyneth Paltrow's new Goop series on Netflix, all about wellness. Then we're going to talk about this year's March for Life. I reported from the March last week, Donald Trump was the first president in history to attend. So I got to see the president, you guys. (laughs) Uh, And finally, this week, we're going to discuss a viral job 
description, a job posting for a household manager slash cook slash nanny posted by a CEO in Menlo Park, California, who's also a single mother. And then for our Slate Plus Is It Sexist segment, we are going to ask, was it sexist that the Washington Post suspended a reporter for tweeting out a link about the rape allegation against Kobe Bryant in the hours after his death? Here's a little snippet of that conversation. This one's a really layered one because I'm a little surprised by the reaction of the Washington Post. Um, I'm not surprised by the reaction on Twitter because I think that's a space Mm -hmm. in which a lot of people have been openly in conflict about how to report about Kobe Bryant, how to talk about him. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet... You should start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash the waves plus. It's only $35 for your first year. No excuses. <laughs> okay. On to the show. Goop. It's Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle empire, and now it's a new Netflix series. Marsha, what's the deal here? What is the deal here? <laughs> so um, actress turned lifestyle mogul mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow has brought the goop sensibility to the small screen in a series about how they determine the recommendations that they make for the goop brand. So the goop lab looks at not only Gwyneth Paltrow's relationship with her staff, but the staff go together on journeys (laughs) from psychedelic mushrooms to spending time with the expert on female orgasm, Betty Dotson. The show is as much about how Gwyneth Paltrow determines um, what gets the goop stamp of approval as it also is about this idea of self-improvement. And I think that there's a way that goop, as it has existed over a decade now, is supposed to represent both this deeply frivolous and deeply privileged way of people seeking out external remedies for anything from the way that they look to the way that they feel to managing their emotions. And I think it's an easy target for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. But what I think is fascinating about all of this is that Gwyneth Paltrow's brand is, I think, the high-end version of what is made available to everyday people in the form of skincare that's accessible to folks. So you either are buying it at the $4,000 level or the $4 (laughs) level at CVS. But there's idea that there are all of these ways to make better the human person um, is incredibly fascinating. I watched a few episodes of this. I'm clearly not the target audience because (laughs) it's it's because I don't have access to the types of things that Gwyneth Paltrow is presenting. But anytime I see women in this particular position in which women have been able to monetize the deep insecurities that the mm-hmm. culture implants in them, I'm always fascinated how they do it in a way that suggests that we are stronger than the negative messages of the culture and that we can strategize ourselves out of self-hatred. Yeah. the So the phrase that Gwyneth Paltrow uses in sort of like the trailer to the series is optimization of self. Mm. And I found that aspect of the series, putting aside the question of like scientific reliability, mm. which those questions are large and important, um, I found it stressful just because every episode <laughs> seemed to tell me like, 
a thing that I should be doing because something was wrong with me. Similar to like advertising for women targeted products for generations, you know, like this thing is wrong with you. Like, here's how you fix it. But these things that Gwyneth Paltrow and her staff are talking about, and Marsha, I'm kind of surprised you didn't bring up the workplace aspect, which I think we should mm. definitely oh, talk we're about. Get into. <laughs> yeah, like, ugh, ugh. but um, <laughs> it's it was like they're talking about mental health in a lot of the episodes and like self fulfillment. It's not just about making your body better or making yourself look younger. It's about it's sort of like em- the embodiment of mental anguish and emotional trauma. And they throw around the trauma for just about anything that happened to you that made you feel bad. And I felt like there was something very sexist and very gendered about the way they turned bad things that happened to them and any sort of like mental health issues into something that was wrong with their bodies. Like mm-hmm. it, if I'm ha- if I have a panic disorder or I have stress around this terrible thing that happened to me when I was a kid, it must be like hidden in my sacrum somewhere, mm-hmm. or I have to train my body to breathe better about it. If And I don't think that men experience the same kind of like, oh, a bad thing happened to me. It must be something wrong with my body that I now need to fix in my body. It felt like uh, in some ways a response to sexism and in other ways just another way of reflecting sexist ideas about what's wrong with women's bodies back onto themselves. Like, oh, there's something wrong with me, which then – helps me understand why they sort of wrap it in with all these facials and diets and stuff like that. And I do believe that there are physical components to trauma Mm -hmm. and the ways to, you know, that deep breathing exercises and stuff can help people get over anxiety or at least deal with stress. But it's very strange to me that then these same people who are really invested in the notion of trauma living in the body are so anti-psychiatric medication, let's say. Mm. You know, these sort of like physical and medical responses to, you know, mental health issues or, or mental illness or trauma that do exist and do work for a lot of people and are kind of demonized, especially in the first couple episodes of the show. Well, that really helps me figure out a response that I have, which was, so along with the Goopers experiencing firsthand some of these things, we also, in the episodes, hear from real people, I guess is the only thing, only way that you can describe them. Not <laughs> As the, opposed to the Exactly, the ersatz people at, at, at Goop. Yeah, I mean, it's an odd presentation because they are, they are, in fact, presented without comment. We hear who they are, how old they are, uh, and then they kind of give a testimonial about why this thing, which might be psychedelics or it might be um, you know, energy work, how it's helped them. And they tend to be people who, like, again, I don't know if this word real doesn't feel appropriate, but it's the one that's closest <laughs> to hand. It's like they have real problems. You know, they have post-traumatic hmm. stress from being in a war zone and, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that made me feel extremely uncomfortable, a couple of them repeatedly, you know, talked about suicidal ideation, which I understand yeah. is was a real thing that they had. And it's not for me to get on top of that. But like, I didn't really feel like that belonged in in a show that as the the card at the beginning says is, you know, they don't exactly say that. it. Well, they say it's designed to entertain and inform. And like these people and check with your doctor before you actually yeah. do anything disclaimer yeah. disclaimer disclaimer yeah so that that made me feel just uncomfortable but also that felt slightly dangerous like not actually dangerous i don't feel like i need to go picket netflix about the way that those 
quote-unquote real people were used, but it felt like they, that used was really what was being done to them because they were kind of, they were, again, making a testimonial about the efficacy of these treatments, how they genuinely helped them in their in their particular type of pain. And I was like, well, what's that got to do with these, you know, apparently these skinny young people out there tripping in Jamaica, you know, like that, that there was this disconnect that felt just weird and, and, and creeped me out a little bit. Yeah. Well, one of the kind of conceits of the show, and I think of Gwyneth Paltrow launching this company was, you know, I was acting and there, I wanted more. And it was this idea that her life as an actor was superficial, but this is deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I just want to, present that question um, because I think this idea of her brand is a form of evolution and a kind of maturity, both spiritually and emotionally, um, while also not aging <laughs> and mm-hmm. also not allowing the body to kind of go through processes that all bodies go through. <laughs> and so I think the contradiction of her and the way that this show is so polarizing is a good way of thinking about the tensions that exist in this wellness space and how we've substituted this idea of good health for wellness, which is supposed to not put so much pressure on you, but strangely puts even more pressure Mm -hmm, on you mm -hmm. because wellness in its broad definition gives us more opportunities to fail in achieving it. (laughs) I don't know. Or is that... I don't know. It's it's not just going to your doctors for checkups, right? It's experimental treatments. And it's not just getting eight hours of sleep. It's using apps to like monitor the quality of your mm-hmm, sleep. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm necessarily opposed to all of these things, but I do wonder how taking care of the self becomes an activity rather than a, a means to kind of enjoy other parts of your life. Yeah. And I think this show was an experiment on whether those, you know, wellness treatments and and wellness, you know, self-optimizations make good TV. And yes. I think it doesn't. Yes. I found it That's incredibly boring in yeah. part because Gwyneth Paltrow, her chief content officer, Elise Lonin, who is, you know, sort of sitting beside her in all the interviews with all the experts and practitioners who are mostly men, by the way, mm. I feel like they – they have no like charisma or magnetism mm-hmm. or anything that you would expect from people in a like cult of personality business. They have it. I think it must just be like their taste and their style and their marketing that appeals to people because I in part because the people who they send on all these experimental missions to, you know, get their energy healing and do yoga in the snow and whatever they're not really given the freedom, it seemed, to have different reactions to the things. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. all like, oh, my God, like, how did it feel to jump into a cold lake? Oh, it was an incredible experience. <laughs> I'm like, they filmed, you know, six people jumping into a lake with all the suspense of a psychological thriller. But you're really just watching people jump into a lake. Like, mm-hmm. I can't feel how cold the lake is. Or, you know, oh, we're, somebody's doing a, a video diary about what it's like to live on a pescatarian diet, <laughs> which, by the way, is my everyday diet. And she's like, oh, here I am. It's 8 p.m. I really wish I could have meat now. I'm like, what? This is... Like, creating drama out of 
nothing. Yeah. And like there's nothing more boring than being the sober person watching a bunch of people on mushrooms having an experience completely within their own heads. I'm like, I am not experiencing any of this. I'm just watching people like lay on a yoga mat with their earbuds in. Do you ever just wish that one of the staffers will just look into the camera and just blink a few times (laughs) to let you know that they're like they have so much student loan debt. They had to do this show. There are moments where Gwyneth Paltrow is so not charismatic to me. Yeah. To Mm -hmm. me. And these staffers are supposed to be like on board with her stuff. And I'm like, no, I, I can tell if everyone is faking, if it was just so put on, if they're so bought in. It is the most bizarre dynamic and any workplace again that requires you to talk about your sexual you oh know, my your, god your, yes your, your your sexual like challenges <laughs> makes you go, jump into icy water in your like, bathing suit in your bathing suit like it's it's just so wildly inappropriate i would have preferred if it was just people who wanted to have these experiences mm-hmm. on the show but once it became clear there were people who work for her i was like you know, HR needs to be contacted immediately. Definitely. Like, I imagine the experience of working at Goop is like you're expected to have a life-changing, cathartic experience every single day. (laughs) Like, how many times are you expected to get over your panic disorder? Like, when you jump into the lake, it got you over your panic disorder. When you get your energy, you know, the tip of your spine touched by a man, like, that helps you get over your deep-seated trauma. And then maybe when you do a your your fasting diet, wow, like Gwyneth Paltrow felt so, she felt so weak, but then at the end she felt so strong. Like how many different transformations can you go through in a week at working at Goop? Like how, literally, when do, when is yourself optimized? Like how many of these things do you have to do? Well, and, and, not, and I agree completely. And the other part that, that worried me was not only like how do I have to kind of present my journey for the camera and or for my co-workers uh, edification? But some of the particular uh, experiences I felt were also manipulated for the cameras. Watching the episode about energy manipulation together, my partner and I came as close as we've come in nearly 23 years to having an argument. And it wasn't over. <laughs> wow, humble brag. Yeah, I know, right? Thank you. Um, And it wasn't over that style of healing because both of us have been clients of that particular kind of healing. I'm an absolute believer. I've had that kind of healing much more frequently than I've gone to the regular old doctor. It was about how he effectively was making people spasm. Like, that is not Hmm. good healing. Making people retch, making people spasm. Like, that's for the cameras. That is not for... For, like that is not necessary to do that form of energy huh. work. And the, the argument was over whether it was porny, whether the kind of the arching of the back was supposed to look like they were, you know, having, having sexual feelings. I yeah. did not think it was porny. I think it's just like you have a lot of young, skinny people uh, <laughs> spasming on a, on, <laughs> on a couch. It kind of looks that way. What an endorsement of the show. <laughs> No, I'm I'm with your partner, June. Yeah, I thought it yeah. was I thought it was trying to make it look sexual too. That's interesting, but like that was not necessary. I, I've I've not been healed by John Amaral, but any kind of of energy work that I've had does not lead to that kind of response, and I don't think that's a productive part of that work. And I think that was done for the cameras subconsciously or otherwise, and that feels like oh, don't do that. Like first of all. You're also giving a bad impression of this particular kind of work because you want to because you need to show something. Just having somebody lie 
and you know, mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. it internally, which is kind of how healing works. Like that's not very good television. That's why we don't have the people getting massaged channel. You know what I mean? So <laughs> there were just so many. There were just so many issues that just felt like, ah, I'm, and I just didn't feel like I learned anything. As we've all said, like I, I think a lot of us are curious about psychedelics in a healing modality, as they put it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't learn anything from just seeing a bunch of people tripping in Jamaica. That just didn't teach me anything. It didn't reveal anything. Um, so I really wanted to go come into this segment like, it's so easy to, to bag on Gwyneth and, you know, blah, blah. And I just didn't want but I can't not because it's just this show is a disappointment. I do want to say, because I don't want to only talk about the things I didn't like about the show. There was one segment in the female orgasm episode, which talk about a workplace nightmare. <laughs> um, I did like this one part, which had it not been with coworkers, I think it would have mm. been really touching where they had to massage each other's hands and feet and tell each other what they liked and didn't like and say like, oh, could you please, you know, massage the back of my hand or like that feels good, but can you not do that so much as practice for talking to their partners about what they like and didn't like in bed. Again, completely problematic, something that you should definitely not be doing with people you work with, but it felt like this is something that I have seen, you know, versions of repeated in other, you know, groups that I've been a part of. And I think it is very valuable. And I would hope that because Gwyneth is a really easy entree for some people into talking about, you know, sexual health and stuff like she's very not intimidating. She didn't even know, allegedly, the difference between a vagina and a vulva. (laughs) Marsha's kind of rolling her eyes and like, I I, I don't know if I believe that either. But, you know, for for people who really are like, ew, I'm supposed to talk about a vagina or, you know, like I'm supposed to look at myself down there. Perhaps they can watch this show and think, okay, like here's a way that I can experience something that not only is actually possibly valuable to me, but also doesn't cost anything. I can I can practice talking to my partner about things that I like and don't like, and I don't have to spend, you know, thousands of dollars to travel to Lake Tahoe and have a, you know, man who looks like the life aquatic dude tell me to jump in a lake. Well, on that note, um, listeners, I would love to know if you guys have watched this show or if you've tried any of these healing modalities and... Uh, I'd love to hear about how you thought they were portrayed on the Goop Lab. Our email address is thewaves at slate.com. All right. The March for Life. It's an annual rally and protest that has been held every year since Roe v. Wade was decided in the 70s. It's a gathering of anti-choice people, including many, many religious schools and church groups who come and lobby Congress and listen to some speeches from clergy and activists and um, usually a few members of the House and Senate. I've been to report on it a couple times. The last time was, I think, three years ago, just after Trump's inauguration in the Women's March. At that rally, Mike Pence came. And at the time, he was the highest ranking person in the U.S. government to ever show his face and speak at the rally. Definitely the first sitting vice president to attend. This year, Trump did them one better not to be shown up by Mike Pence. And he showed up himself to give a speech. So I went to see you know, what the vibe would be like. I went and talked to a bunch of people. I 
thought, you know, this will probably be a different event because it's the president and especially in an election year and it's in the middle of his impeachment trial, which for me, it really seemed like Donald Trump got just as much out of it Mm. as the people who attended did, in part because it was you know, in the middle of his impeachment trial. And he loves a rally. You know, this is it feels like he loves being in front of a crowd of people who love him more than he loves being president. That's probably a really non-controversial opinion. I think it's pretty obvious. And, you know, I think it felt really good for him to just pop down a couple blocks from his house and see thousands of people who were all chanting his name and holding posters with his face on them, which when I went three years ago, there were people with Trump hats and, you know, people who were pleased about Trump. I talked to a bunch of people there, too. But there was a lot more of the vibe of, oh, you know, I don't like everything he stands for or I don't like, you know, the person he is. He's not my favorite, but I think he's going to be really good on abortion issues. And, you know, I'm really optimistic. Maybe this is the last march we're going to have. People were really concerned about the Supreme Court. And, you know, because at the time there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court that Mm -hmm. Republicans had stolen from the Obama administration. And this time the vibe was a lot more one note. Trump is the best president on this issue we've ever had. That was really striking to me in your great dispatch, which everybody should check out. Uh, Follow the links in our show notes. Because I, you know, of course, it was clear that the president showing up is going to engender positive feelings toward Mm -hmm. that person from that particular group. But this kind of repetition of most pro-life president in history, most pro-life president ever, the, the, you know, your description of the posters of what people were saying and chanting, that surprised me just because... He's not, you know, like uh, clearly, yes, this is a a strategic decision that's honestly a smart one on his part to really focus on this. I mean, he just isn't sure he's doing things now. He's doing things. And, and you know, I think that we're seeing real clear threats, but his like he's not a good ally for them. Like not not really. Well, I'm not entirely sure that's right, because I think the. The number of federal judges that he's been able mm, to appoint mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. are incredibly staunchly anti-choice. Yep. And I think this is a really good example of what happens um, when you can organize voters on a single issue and you can yep. provide them an opportunity to vote a single issue without having to be accountable for the kind of periphery issues. And this is why I think it's really fascinating when I see Catholic organizations, including the university I work with, um, you know, align with March for Life and have just kind of different activities with it. Because I think that there is a segment of Catholic values voters who will say, okay, now do the death penalty. (laughs) And then you start to see the kind of collapse of the kind of pro-life, broadly defined tent. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if he is the most pro-life person to ever exist, but in terms of being able to capture the White House through federal judges, through the Supreme Court, and through his his alignment with evangelicals, Mm -hmm. I guess they're right. It, the tone of it the most ever is just how oh, he's the most winningest president and he's the most 
intellectually stable genius president, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Like it's <laughs> it's part of the rhetoric. And though I feel like you can kind of make a case that it's true. Yeah. He has expanded anti-choice policies beyond what other Republican presidents have done. I mean, his first, I think it was his first day in office, he reinstated the Mexico City policy, which removes family planning funding, um, U.S. family planning aid from groups that provide abortion care. But he also expanded it instead of applying that rule just to family planning funding, he applied it to all U.S. foreign aid. So that includes money that goes to groups that around the world that do other work, but maybe, you know, support groups that, you know, provide abortion care or support groups who support groups who provide abortion care. So, you know, that is just one example of something he did on his first day in office that no other Republican president had done before. He also had the, quote unquote, benefit of having to Supreme Court vacancies. So he was able to have a disproportionate impact on the landscape for abortion rights in the Supreme Court. That said, I mean, I I do think that a lot of it has to do with just everyone wanting to flatter his ego and maybe also wanting to justify to themselves their support for Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. That's what I think. I mean, I don't disagree with anything either of you have just said. Those are points very well made. And I do think that reproductive rights are under more threat now than at any time that I can remember. So, sure, he's pretty effective. I'm kind of holding on to to like a personality thing. You know, this is a guy who was espousing (laughs) Mm -hmm. himself to be pro-choice until super recently, who's had open conversations about pushing for some of the children that he has actually brought into the world to have been aborted. You know, like just creepy personal shit that that contradicts, um, you know, his stated position. But yeah, this isn't about what's in his heart, I guess. I'm falling for his nonsense, you know. his All he talks about at his rallies, which weirdly I've fallen into a strange habit of going home and like, Turning on YouTube and like watching Trump rallies, it's a very, God, June, it's a don't very. Do that to yourself. I need to get out of that habit, but but it is like it's oh my god, it's so disturbing. But it's so much personality. It's all about his, you know, and just like the things that he said, he made repeated that claim in the speech that he gave at the March for Life about, you know, that just I don't even know what he's talking about of Democrats being open to aborting fetuses rights up till the day after they're born or something? Like, what the hell is he even talking about? And he just says stuff like that, and you just think, I don't even know. Are we on the same planet? Well, it appears to me that some elements of this movement are not concerned with the granular details (laughs) of how you deliver the mail on this issue, right? And so... In some ways, it's kind of fascinating to see how well organized Mm. the kind of anti-choice movement is, but it's a movement that doesn't require diligence. And so just in the ways that people who are um, pro-Medicare for all have to explain how it's going to work, how you pay for it, other places that have single payer, you know, you have have to come with this incredibly well-prepared speech because the scrutiny is so deep. If you're on the... Pro-choice side. If you're on the pro side, but if you are part of this broad pro-life coalition, you don't have to have medical knowledge. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have clarity in how state policy affects access. You don't really have to know much about pregnancy 
or abortion in order to leverage yourself as an expert. And some of it is because it has this intersection of um, an issue that operates around religious moral conviction and politics together. And so when you put those two forces together, facts, Trump's dossier on the issue, his thoughts about it are all collapsed. Mm -hmm. But I think that this is emblematic of the entire movement, because if the goal is ending abortion at all costs, then the then the mechanism doesn't have to be strong. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know if we have a lot of political issues that are able to rest in that space. I think what you said, Marsha, about, you know, the ending abortion at all costs really came through for me when I was there, in part because there are so many clergy members and, you know, people in religious garments at the march coming from a Catholic family, going to a Jesuit university where Marsha works. uh, I felt like I had witnessed what I felt was kind of like an uncomfortable marriage between anti-abortion rhetoric and the rhetoric of justice, you know, especially at a school like Georgetown where priests are taking students down to protest, you know, a training camp for militias and also protesting the death penalty and coming out in support of DACA and immigrant rights. To go to this rally and see priests and nuns or people I perceive to be priests and nuns based on what they were wearing, wearing MAGA hats, cheering for Trump, pumping their fists, screaming four more years was incredibly disturbing to me. And I don't know why I expect, you know, clergy members and and other people of faith to have a little bit more like, I guess, moral clarity or moral consistency on issues of politics. But I think I did expect that because it did disturb me when I was Mm. there. The other thing that I found really interesting was the co-optation of the rhetoric of progressive movements. So and in that, I think you can see what really scares these people. So you see a lot of signs that are like riffs on Black Lives Matter. Unborn lives matter. Black babies matter. By the way, it's all white people holding these signs. Uh, There's also a lot of talk this year. The theme was women's empowerment because Mm. it's about to be the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. It's uh, a common myth among the anti-choice set that the, you know, suffragists were all vehemently anti-abortion, which there was a, a very good piece in the Washington Post this year that uh, sort of disproved those myths or, you know, explained them and called them into question. And and also, I kind of don't care what the suffragists thought about abortion, to be perfectly honest. But besides that, there was a lot more talk about feminism this year, mm. where in the past, you know, there's always been a group called Feminists for Life and other people who say, you know, like, I'm a feminist and I support women and I support fetuses or like, I'm with her pointing to a picture of a fetus. Um, But this year, the term feminism was all over the place. I think we're reaching a point, not with everybody, but with a a significant portion of the anti-choice movement where the term feminism has become diluted so much that they're ready to claim it and use it in, you know, support of the idea that the anti-choice movement is supporting women's empowerment. Wow. Well, if you had to um, describe your impression of the rally in one <laughs> adjective, what would it be? I would say hopeful. In what way? I, it was a very joyous event. Um, 
And there were a lot of, I mean, it it didn't provide me with hope, but I think it, it provided a lot of people there with hope. I think it functions as a validation of culture as much as it's a rallying point on a single issue. So, you know, in in past years, there's been like a little bit of a mournful element to it, especially when Obama was president. And, you know, there's always the very solemn, like, all these babies have died, blah, blah, blah. But I think this year it was a lot more, you know, thinking about there were like big tears for Kavanaugh, even more so than Neil Gorsuch. People are, are thinking that, the movement is about to reach like the height of its power. Wow. Wow. That is sobering. All right. That's about all the time we have for the March for Life listeners. Do you think Donald Trump is the most pro-life president of all time? Send us an email, thewaves at slate.com. All right. Our last topic for this week a job description that went viral. That's a sentence I don't say too often. Uh, June, tell us about this job posting. Indeed. Well, in 2020, the way you know that something is really juicy, not necessarily big or important, but a story that people are really interested in is when it's being eagerly discussed in multiple Slate Slack channels. And late last week, a job posting for a household manager slash cook slash nanny in Silicon Valley earned that distinction. Now, Usually at media enterprises, the job ads that get most scorn are the ones that basically want someone to do every job at a small local newspaper for an annual salary of like $10,000 and no benefits. But this wasn't one of those. In fact, it was a pretty sweet gig. This family has other staffers. They also have a housekeeper, an au pair, a property manager and a gardener slash handyman in addition to this new hire. It seemed like the reason that people were obsessing about this job listing was the specificity. It was Mm. more than a thousand words and the job description involved things like assist 10-year-olds with light homework in long division, subtraction and writing, play math games with them such as how much fish should we buy today for five (laughs) of us and how long will it take us to drive in the snow if it's 150 miles and we go 50 miles an hour. I should say that the the job is to kind of work with two 10-year-old twins. There was information about allergies, no cow and goat dairy, chicken eggs, green beans or watermelon, and a lot of discussion of various kinds of vacation activities that need to be coordinated. And the job listing mentioned that the applicant can bike around town with 10-year-olds, can throw balls and do calisthenics and generally play and roughhouse (laughs) with kids. And the thing that actually kind of broke my heart, quote, has room in their hearts to love the kids and the mom, has a high capacity to be loved by them. (laughs) So I think there was both, I mean, it was, again, the specificity, the, the just the, the kind of slightly deranged variety of tasks. But I, I love specificity. I think there's nothing more soothing than clarity. And I think there was also an element of like, this job doesn't seem exploitative. It's, there's an element of sadness, perhaps, that the mom, who's a single mom, like, really seems to be looking for a friend. Um, When Slate's Ruth Graham found this um, poster and interviewed her, that really, you know, she was very open, you know, that, yeah, what she needed was a wife. She didn't mean um, in a romantic sense, but just like to, to do that job that just isn't done much anymore, especially in a single parent family of just like helping, setting things up getting on the phone or making decisions and just like 
being the being another mom to the kids. What did you guys think? Because I think my response was not necessarily the typical one. Hmm. I'm firmly on team. Fuck this. Uh, <laughs> I I also think I'm one of the few people, judging by social media responses, who became less sympathetic to her after I read Ruth Graham's interview oh, with wow. her. No, yeah. Because I don't think what she was asking of this person was too much. I think, like you said, June, I think it was mostly specificity. When you really think about what she was asking, you know, it's not like a a job that would take necessarily more than 40 hours a week. It's just she really described every single thing that the person would be doing. And I think, you know, if she gave the person normal hours and paid them well and, you know, the one big flashing neon red flag was the I want somebody who can be loved by me, which I think is an unfair thing to ask of an employee. But the thing that I did think was weird and really annoyed me was when she talked to Ruth Graham and she was complaining about how hard it was. And she said, our society is broken. Here it is January and I'm having to spend hours of my time late at night trying to figure out summer camp and get them signed up for sports and all that. That is not an example of our society being broken. Like, do not try to lump in your frustration with finding the perfect flag football team or your need to, like, plan the best possible Europe trip with the inability of other single parents to afford child care and have paid family leave. Because I think that's what she was referring to when she said our society is broken. Like, there are ways you could make this easier for yourself. Other single parents successfully single parent without a staff of four people. I understand it might be hard if you want your two twins to be on different soccer teams at the same time, 20 minutes apart. But you don't have to do that. Kids are fine without doing that. And... I think the fact that she was, like, trying to justify it, instead of just saying, like, I have the money and I can afford this help, she was saying it's so hard to be a single mom. Most families, when they take their kids on ski trips, the dad can tag in and take the kid for one run and then I can take it. It's so hard, right? It's exhausting, right? Like, no, actually, that's not most families, I don't think. Or (laughs) Yeah, that's some families, but, like, families who can afford to go on ski trips. You could also hire like send your kids on a ski lesson or something. There's just a lot of ways around it without saying this is an unavoidable spat of suffering that I'm trying to relieve. Mm. So I read this at six o'clock this morning because I had to get up early (laughs) to do some, you know, like paperwork um, for our family stuff and send some checks out, do email and think about the waves. Oh, my God. And then later today, I have to, like, make sure the, like, handyman can come into the house to fix a heater. And as I'm reading this description, <laughs> I'm so deeply jealous. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I wish I could hire someone <laughs> to do these things for me. Because mm-hmm. I think, like, my husband and I will spend years trying to figure out a vacation. There's a there's a part of the job where it says, figure out if points or cash are better <laughs> for vacation. This takes like six months out of our relationship every year. Like, where are we going to go? How many points do we have? So as she's reading this description, I was like, gosh, I could do all of these things. <laughs> where are you going to apply for the where job? Where am I going to apply for this job? Um, all of this is to say that um, you know, for people of a certain class, um, overwhelmed is the kind of dominant mode in which we communicate with each other. I'm guilty of it. Everyone I know is guilty of it. And I think that this is actually an interesting companion piece to our group conversation. Mm-hmm. It's how do we make the experiences we have with ourselves and each other, how 
do we turn it all into a series of activities that we can judge whether we're doing them well or doing them poorly? And so parenting is an incredibly complicated and stressful task, but there's some elements of these requests that aren't just about the kids' allergies or even some of engaging their interests. It's about assessing whether they're having good enough childhoods Mm -hmm. and if this is going well. And I think whether it's, you know, spending all Saturday cooking something because you need to eat, but cooking has become this kind of leisure activity for people of a certain class because you are overwhelmed or Mm -hmm. whether or not you're breathing deeply enough because breathing is necessary for life, (laughs) but are you doing it in the best possible way? There's some of that energy in this job description. And so I felt very mixed because on one hand, I can only imagine how ambitious and driven this woman is and how overwhelmed she must be. But back to Christina's point, this is not the every woman who we're supposed to use as a prism to understand the failures of childcare and healthcare and education. It's a person who's making a series of choices in a culture that tells us when you have as many choices as possible, everything has to be optimal, including the level of interest that your kids can take in life. <laughs> you know, like they don't need to practice math all the time. They could do some math homework. You know, it, it's it's a lot. Yeah. And Marsha, it also reminded me of something you've said about your book, Franchise, uh, (laughs) where you said you felt a little, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like ambivalent about writing about the concerns of aggrieved millionaires. Yes. And what, you know, I think what you were talking about is the fact that some like black McDonald's franchise owners are still discriminated within Mm -hmm. McDonald's. And, you know, Many other great points in the book, yeah. (laughs) Um, But what this woman wanted to say she was showing us is that money can't buy you out of sexism or the, you know, failures of our capitalist society. Mm -hmm. I think she was showing us one small segment of that, which is that money can't buy your way out of the anxieties of modern parenthood in certain classes. So there are a lot of qualifiers there. She also said, you know, this is sexist. People wouldn't have been outraged by this post if a man had posted it. I'm not sure I believe that. I think they would have also said, like, oh, this person, like, is looking for a wife, which I really think that I need a wife formulation needs to die because I think we should be in the business of divorcing these kinds of expectations from wifedom. She also makes clear that she wouldn't really consider a man for the role, like, First of all, calling it a wife. And then she also talks about like, oh, I don't want like a nice grandmotherly baby, baby nanny, you know. I need someone who can like snowboard. Also, this is a really, I mean, it's already physically demanding dealing with two 10-year-olds. She wants this person to be able to like river swim, which I guess is important for safety reasons. <laughs> no, she wants them to like river swimming. Not only do you have to go on vacation with our family, you have to have fun doing it. Well, I mean, this also, this is tethered to a very long history of like domestic help being perceived as a member of the family from one Mm -hmm, angle mm -hmm, and then the mm -hmm, domestic mm -hmm. helper having all sorts of hot takes on the family (laughs) that they can't share. And so there's Mm -hmm. something about this. It is deeply intimate for a person to care of another person's child or an elder. You know, I I get that. But there's something about this, like the capacity to love me. Uh, I'm going to mount a slight defense of this woman because (laughs) and this job ad. because. Okay. One thing that Ruth's interview pointed out, that this was not intended to be 
a public posting. She was using a search firm and she, you know, and, and this was something that she had written to help them because she wasn't getting the right kind of candidate and it was accidentally shared. And I do think there's an element of sexism in the kind of the way, the glee that people took in in the breaking down of of the tasks and also in part I suspect because people are like there really is a lot. Yeah, look at this. There's this person who's done this work to break down this excruciatingly detailed job description of an extraordinarily privileged woman's family. Like there was a there was a glee that was taken in that. I do think too that sure this woman is so privileged. This is so atypical. There, you know, that we weren't all descending on it on Slack channels to talk about the terrible situation for the vast majority of people and their childcare options and lack thereof stipulated. But I think there is also like if even a bloody gazillionaire can't get this <laughs> taken care of, like how fucked are we? And I think too that But that, she can get it taken care of. She yeah, just she has can. to have it done in the most perfect possible way. Yeah. But you know what? Mm. What, what would it be better if she had, had put a, a job description that was like, you know, if if you can look after them, okay, that would be swell. I mean like that's just the nature <laughs> of, of of a you know, the performance of being a high performing person. I like there's so much in the world to to criticize. I just think like this woman's particular extreme specificity just didn't get me going. And I think it's funny because before this came along, we had been talking about another topic, um, which is Mm -hmm. sort of related, which is the sort of disappearance of the better paid women's jobs. Women now hold more payroll jobs in the US than men. That's a milestone. And that's because the occupations associated with men, things like manufacturing are shrinking while service jobs are increasing. And while things like nursing can seem like a, a decently paid job, things like home health aid or um, nursing assistants, childcare workers, which are also booming, are extremely low paid. It's not surprising that men don't want to move into those particular fields. But we also read about the vanishing executive assistant. Mm-hmm. Now, 1.6 million secretarial or executive assistant jobs have disappeared since 2000. We are, we're all, uh, whether we're in white collar jobs, um, actually probably only in white collar jobs, we're all kind of taking care of more stuff ourselves that in more, in relatively recent years would have been uh, handled by someone else. Um, and that does feel significant. I think that probably we all can handle things we don't need someone to book our travel, perhaps, even though it would be nice. But it does all feel like there's, there is something going on here. Let's not just pile on this woman, although it is kind of fun. I'll just say this. Mm-hmm. I think that this is also reflective of changing job markets and changing opportunities. But I do think it's interesting that in a previous iteration, a person who did not attend college could be a nanny for a wealthy family and be considered sufficient in their <laughs> knowledge of taking care of children and their ability to do a number of things. In this example, it's really interesting because I think there was a preference for a college graduate. College College graduate or uh, equivalent experience. Or equivalent experience. How does one get an experience Mm -hmm. that allows them to be sufficient for this type of job if they don't have it, right? So there's a way that even um, within the sectors of domestic help, 
that there's a professionalized domestic help class that can make more money and have more access than everyone else. So I think that inequalities abound. I would love for someone to help me as much as this woman is seeking. And I stand by that statement. Yeah, this is a rich text. Um, (laughs) Listeners, we would love to hear what you, yeah, rich in multiple dimensions. Mm -hmm. Um, Listeners, let us know what you thought of it. Was it sexist for people to rag on this woman? You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. And if you're good at river swimming, apply for this job. (laughs) All right, recommendation time. What did you guys bring? I think I may have recommended uh, this show before. In fact, I'm pretty certain I have. But it's the time of year when the TV show Vera airs its episodes in the U.S. Um, They're airing right now on BritBox, I believe. Uh, We're on season 10. I don't think there are going to be all that many episodes. Um, But it's such a good show. It's Barbara Blethyn as the the titular detective. And, you know, it's in some ways there, there are elements that are typical. She's the kind of older woman who's who appears to be slightly rude and scatterbrained and inconsiderate. She's actually, of course, uh, incredibly considerate, incredibly empathetic, incredibly smart. She solves these mysteries in a way that is very satisfying, not to spoil anything, but it's never the first person. It's <laughs> rarely the second person. It's usually the third very significant suspects that's presented to us. It even makes Geordie Land look attractive. It's just, it's a really good show. And season 10, there have been two episodes airing so far. It's just a really good show. I really recommend Vera. I'm going to watch that, actually. It sounds great. Um, Marsha, what do you have? Um, our conversations today about the March for Life reminded me of one of my favorite articles from Rewire News from Cynthia Greenlee called A Short History of Abortion-Related Boycotts. Um, it was published in May, and it's it reminds us the context of how we got here, and it talks about reactions to the episode of Maud where she <laughs> seeks an abortion and the different boycotts of companies that seem even adjacent to feminists who may support abortion <laughs> and how these boycotts work. And I think it's a it's a good way to kind of think about not only March for Life, but some of the things that we might see as 2020 draws near. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm going to recommend a column in The New York Times by Michelle Goldberg, a former Slate columnist. It's called The Darkness Where the Future Should Be. It is a really beautiful and thoughtful piece about the way people in 2020, particularly progressives, have an increasingly dark vision of the future, which could possibly hamper uh, motivation for creating the better world that we used to believe could still come to pass. So Michelle Goldberg talks to William Gibson, who's a science fiction writer, creates sort of near future dystopias and and thinks about the way that technology and and capitalism will sort of influence society in the future. And he says, you know, it, in every period of history, people have been able to imagine a brighter future for themselves. You know, in in the mid uh, 20th century, the future of technology looked really bright and people were excited by all the ways that technology could improve the human condition today. Thinking about technology in the future, 
makes people feel a sense of doom because we're thinking about AI and surveillance and uh, the ways that social networks, which had, you know, great promise for democratic engagement and connection across geography and and class have turned into mechanisms for disinformation and supporting genocides. And she also talks about, you know, the the movement of far right and nativist and sort of fascist governments taking over across the world and what it means for us at this point to not be able to imagine a, a better future with as much ease. Anyway, I'm not doing the piece justice. It's really fantastic. Um, again, it's called The Darkness Where the Future Should Be by Michelle Goldberg. All right. That's our show for today. Thank you to Lindsay Cradwell, who produced this episode, to Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and to Rosemary Belson, who recorded us here in D.C. For Marcia Chatlin and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.